Thanks for listening to this Word in Your Ear podcast. If you'd like to get early access to all our productions ad-free, priority booking for our live events, and to take part in our weekly quiz, go to patreon.com slash wordinyourear for more details. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. How to get 30, 30, bit to get 30, bit to get 20, 20, 20, bit to get 20, 20, bit to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month? So Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. You're listening to a podcast from The yes. Word. So we're podcasting from uh, what Fraser has just pointed out to me is the only non-air-conditioned uh, room in the building, Fraser. Yes, we're thinking of you, listener. Yes, so we, we have to do it in 10-minute stints and then go out for a walk around the block, get a bit of air. But uh, we hope it's uh, improving your listening experience, uh, viewers. Uh, please let us know if it is or isn't. This is Word Magazine Podcast. I'm David Hepworth, and uh, sitting around the table with me is... Fraser Lurie. Does that, does that qualify as round the table, two people? I don't know. Across um, from, I don't know. Later on, we're going to be joined by um, Barry McElhenney and Aris Rusinos to talk about uh, whether there's any truth in, uh, in the old Alan Partridge joke about monkey tennis. Uh, but meanwhile, um, hot off the, um, off the word website, wordmagazine.co.uk, a post by Edward Randell, if I'm pronouncing that correctly, uh, caught her eye <coughs> in the last week. Do do forgive me if I'm coughing all the way through this because um, I'm suffering. Although not suffering as much as Danny Baker, who I heard <laughs> last night did his uh, 606 um, phone-in while having, by his own uh, confession, an abscess in his mouth. The doctor had actually told him not to talk. Right. Not only did he disregard that, that instruction in his domestic life, but he also went on the radio. And I thought it, you were going to say he was being operated on. <laughs> yes, absolutely. He was terribly brave of, of him. Was very, very admirable. Anyway, Edward Randell said, uh, you know you're a member of the word massive uh, when you fulfill a certain number of these conditions. You walk around humming that annoying podcast guitar jingle. I do that. Uh, actually, I do that. And Fraser, can you tell us what it is? It's uh, Alice's Restaurant by Arlo Guthrie, played by Mark Allen, I believe. But Mark Allen, I think one of his kids actually was involved in one version. Okay. We, we, there are actually there are different mixes of that of, of that particular tune. I think one involved a shaker, probably shook by one of his sons. Um, not the religious sect of shakers. No, so. not of, of which more later. Uh, you call an album a record. I call an album a record, actually. I, I, I think albums, it feels to me like a very dated term nowadays. 
I still talk about long players, because they are long players, aren't they? I still Doesn't... think I say albums. Oh, uh, right, OK. Because you, you know why albums are called albums? Tell me. Because the first, um, in the early days of the record business, uh, when they were doing symphonies, they couldn't get them all, obviously, on 178. So it was a series of so they would, they would like a photo record, album. They, you know, they, they would, uh, different movements were on different uh, records, which were put together in a package which was, resembled a photo album. My mother's selection of Al Jolson was compiled in exactly that way. Well, there you are. Yeah. So that's why, so all this in education too. Uh, you pepper conversation with Mark Allen's catchphrase, it's not a discussion, Dave, I'm telling you. I've heard that one. Uh, but I often counter with, you're labouring under the misapprehension that you're entitled to your own opinion. Um, you have grown a beard to increase your chances of becoming a word cover star, uh, a theory which is badly holed under the waterline by the appearance of Iggy Pop on, on the cover of, of the, new, uh, the new issue of Word, Sans Beard, Sans just about everything else as well. Uh, and you have a magazine, <laughs> yes. and the final point, you have a magazine on your coffee table with bare breasts on the cover, and they belong to a 60-something man. Okay, and Andy Barron says, you know you remember when you log in on a Saturday night... I don't know if he did that in order to post that. Um, and then uh, Adman says, you, wonder, you know you're a member of the Massive when you n- wonder what Mark Ellen and David Hepworth are doing now. <laughs> you, start, you started to miss Roberta from Spotify. Um, and uh, what else have we got here? You know you remember... Who's this from? I've lost who this is from. You'll have to forgive me. I think it might be Stimpy. Uh, you know you remember when you're hoping there's a thread about the Eurovision on the blog so you can join in. And you go to the homepage before checking your email. <laughs> That's very, it's very gratifying to know that, uh, that it plays such an important uh, part in your life uh, out there. Because um, Edward Randell also pitches in again later in the thread. You know you remember the message when your ideal woman is not Kate Moss, but Kate Mossman. Enough of that. Yep. Um, d- now, there's been a new addition to Fraser's. If you're a regular listener to the, pro- to the podcast, you know that Fraser is famous for going on exotic holidays, aren't you? Give us examples of some of the places you visited in the name of vacation. Pyongyang, Chernobyl, Auschwitz. <laughs> All the greats. All the greats. Um, but you, you, you and Mossman. And Mossman also goes on exotic holidays, isn't she? She goes to kind of bluegrass festivals and so yes. forth. It's not Club Med, is it, with no. Mossman? Okay. So uh, where are you off? We're going just to going New- for the weekend, no? We're going to Newcastle. You're going to Newcastle. That's yeah. an exotic de- destination. For what reason? We're going to an open day of sacred harp singing. And would you explain to the, to the listeners out there sacred who may harp, not be familiar with It's uh, the oldest American form of devotional music. It kind of predates black gospel and that kind of thing. And it's uh, sung using a system of shape notes, which I don't really understand, but I'm going to learn about on the day. It's very, very aggressive, very in your face, very loud, not much subtlety to it, and very righteous, of course. You can probably, you might be able to sample some of this on the interweb, I would imagine. Oh, yes. Lots of it was recorded long before the days of copyright. There's, uh, there's plenty of it on Spotify as well. So if you just go sacred harp music. Because yeah. I've, heard, I've heard some of this stuff on the, uh, that extraordinary encyclopedia or, or whatever it's called, Anthology of American Folk Music, the great Harry Smith yes. collection, <coughs> where, he, where he found a load of old 78s that was put out in 1928-29 and then reissued them in the, in the 50s and subsequently in the 60s. And... Um, it is an extraordinary aggressive sound, isn't it? Yes. And it's a kind of music designed for non-singers, isn't it? Yes, I think oh, so. You're I, I, at me yeah, well, I'm certainly a non-singer, so <laughs> no offence taken, but uh, it, it absolutely is. I think it's it's there for so that anyone can join in, and it's incredibly powerful. They, <coughs> the way they sing it is with 
four sets of pews all facing in and somebody conducting in the middle in the square. So all that volume is pointed directly at that person. Right, right. So you're going to this in Newcastle, and I know both of you are a bit worried in case there might be religion involved. Yeah, I, I fear there may be prayer but at I some think, point. I think it pretty much goes with the word, you know, sacred harp, sacred harp singing. Does, yeah. So, you know, I think you'll have to take that as part of the experience. I, I went to see the Ken Loach, Eric Cantona film last night. How was it? I enjoyed it a great deal. And... Um, I, I just wanted to raise one thing that is in the script, and it's the second time I've come across this in the last in the last few weeks, is the reference to a policeman being a dibble. Right. Are you familiar with it? No. You know, right, okay. Well, this rings a bell with me, because do you know where dibble comes from? It comes from the venerable cartoon series Top Cat. Okay. Where the policeman... Oh, you grew up without the telly, didn't you? Yes. Okay. <laughs> so, I don't know when Top Cat dates from, probably early 60s or something like that. And a uh, bunch of cats lived in an alley, and they were policed by Officer Dibble. Okay. So this program ran, I don't know, two or three I years. I have no idea that's where that came from. Well, but you, you heard people refer to a policeman as Dibble, but you didn't know that. I'd, I'd heard of Officer Dibble. I'd never heard of the Dibble. And you'd never connected it. Yeah. It's just amazing how a thing like that can kind of take wing and yeah. enter the culture and still be there, you know, 40 years later, as a, as a bit of kind of Mancunian street slang. Yeah. And this is before the days of video recorders uh, and all that kind of thing, you know, where people didn't watch things repeated. No. They were there and then they, and then they went away. If I said to you, Arsenal, do you recognise that joke? Uh, I don't know the source of it. I've heard it. But You've I heard it? Source. Okay. I'll tell you what it is. Uh, it's an old Morecambe and Wise routine from the 60s where um, Ernie was supposed to be the memory man and, you know, Eric was supposed to be testing him on uh, facts okay. you know, f- drawn from the, the distant past. And it was basically one of the questions was, you know, who won the, the FA Cup in 1934 or whatever? So like the, co- the coughing colonel on who wants to be a millionaire. So yes. Give away clues. Yes. <laughs> so, no, except Eric just stood there next to him and went, Arsenal. Right. And people still, that joke has That's just right. travelled, yeah. you know. I don't know if jokes still do that nowadays. Maybe they do, maybe they don't. The Word. A magazine, a website, a podcast, a way of life. As promised, the monkey tennis discussion, okay? In full. This is a really good opportunity because in the current issue of Word, which has Iggy Pop on the cover, uh, there's, there's features about television. One of them has a very plain speaking headline, which is, Why do they commission this rubbish? And to talk about it, we have Aris Racinos, who wrote that feature from, from a position of, uh, you know, some <coughs> knowledge, because you are professionally engaged in television production. Paid experience. And, uh, and also the man who's paid to watch a lot of telly for Word, uh, the square-eyed Barry, Barry McElhenney. Okay. Paid a lot to watch a lot of telly. <laughs> I wish. <laughs> Absolutely. So, Aris, let, let's start. Just tell us what you do. Um, I'm a development producer, so my job is basically to think up ideas for documentaries, uh, write up treatments, which are the pictures that go towards channel commissioning editors, and just play about with them uh, until they suit the, the commissioning editor's personal whim. So you sit there and scribble down loads and loads of ideas for television programmes? Yeah, and add in nice pictures and celebrities to front it. Right, OK. So you go, we'll talk in a minute about how you actually put together you know, all the various elements. Just... You know, if we, we read a lot about the travails of television recently, you know, it's all over the papers that apparently, you know, if, if, if all of us around this table emptied our pockets, we could buy ITV <laughs> this morning, couldn't we? Probably. You know, it, it appears to be the case. Uh, you know, the Channel 4 and, and you know, the, the, lots of these smaller channels seem to be, you know, drawing in their horns. So 
Do I get? Am I am I correct in having the impression that they're running scared in television at the moment? Absolutely, it's a massive crisis in TV, probably unprecedented within TV. Um, Channel Four has completely run out of money. It's hanging on to BBC's coattails, pleading for a slice of licence fee. ITV's in free fall. Channel Five, it's in such bad shape that for a while no one is pitching any ideas to Channel 5 because they weren't sure whether the commissioning editors would still be there the week after. Oh, so, really? Yeah. So nobody's ringing Channel 5 at all? It just sort of doesn't... Well, now they've sat about half the commissioning editors so we know who to send them into. So there's so. tumbleweed blowing through television? Essentially, yeah. OK. Well, this is what's happening in the media generally, but I suppose television's not used to this well, at all. It's a grand scale with the sign of it. I mean, it, it, the point I was really interested in in the piece was at the end where you say the credit crunch, therefore, might be a really good thing for TV because it might ring around to kind of clear out this, this, this collision of events. Is, is, that, is that what's happening? Um, it's, that's a very optimistic assessment. But it could well be the case in that um, in a world where you're not so much in hot to advertisers like ITVR, um, say a, li- a licence fee funded Channel 4, a party licence fee funded Channel 4, has to have more of a public state broadcaster role. So they will make more, more world at war, less sex inspectors. Right. Disappointing. <laughs> <laughs> so, Sex Inspectors is a very good example of, you know, the kind of television that we've, we've seen an increasing amount of in the last, I don't know, five or six years. A lot of it I don't watch, but I'm very amused to see, you know, it, it named on the billings in the Radio Times or in the newspapers. Or Celebrity Sperm Bank. <laughs> <laughs> and, and there are various things, uh, you know, that, that mentioned in your piece, you know, Dog Borstal, I know that exists because I have actually seen it. Ten Years Younger, I know that exists, I have actually seen it. The sex inspectors, I haven't seen it, I don't know. Fuck off, I'm fat. Is, is that real? Sorry? It is real, yeah. It's there is fat. actually a programme called Forgive Us, Children, Fuck Off, I'm Fat. There was also Fuck Off, I'm Ginger and Fuck Off, I'm a Hairy Woman, one of Danny Cohen. Uh, the Part of the Fuck Off franchise. <laughs> <laughs> no, it really was. It was uh, Danny Cohen's uh, uh, the controller of BBC Three and that was his calling card when he started. So, yeah. So, you used to think these programmes actually happen? Absolutely, yeah. And the reason is... <laughs> Barry, do you believe this? Watch more TV. Yeah, no, I do, actually. I mean, what, what I don't understand, which Aris may be able to shine some light on, is I, I don't mind some of that stuff. You know, yeah. I, I quite like the best examples of that stuff. What I don't understand is why you can't have that and the kind of really good quality stuff, the occasional bread writing or whatever. Because you used to have loads of that. Absolutely. Uh, I completely agree. But ultimately, it brings in the ratings. Um, is that, what is, is that as simple as that? Absolutely. It's a constant battle for ratings. I mean, the BBC shouldn't have to compete for ratings because it's, you know, licence fee funded. But you've always got the Daily Mail, and today you've got the Conservatives circling around the BBC trying to get rid of the licence fee. So BBC has to compete with Channel 4, who has to compete for the lowest common denominator. So it's a vicious downward spiral. Now, tell me if I'm right. My th- this is my theory about television, how popular television, how it works nowadays. And I don't know if you recognise yourself doing this, Barry. It, it, um, do you ever find yourself walking into a room where a strange programme is on and being watched by possibly one of your teenage yep, children yep. and you pause briefly and you stop and you look and then you sit down on the edge of the sofa and you find yourself saying, what's this? Yep. And then they explain it to you and then you find yourself going off the, off the arm of the sofa into the sofa itself yep. and you sit and watch it for 20 minutes and Cur- feel terrible remorse after you've done it. But you've done it, That current you? thing in our house is The Hills. Oh, right, I don't know that. Do you know The Hills, which is on... Yeah, yeah essentially the real-life OC, in theory. <laughs> That's a, I love the way we can always <laughs> reduce it. <a> <laughs> <laughs> right. 
It's like I remember when I used to work in Empire magazine, every film had to be referred back to Jaws, so speed would be Jaws on a bus. Yes, so yes. it's Jaws on a plane. It's yes. exactly that. It's the real life folks saying the hills is big at the minute with my teenage daughter. And absolutely I go in there and think, what's this sort of rubbish? And then five minutes later quite taken by it. Yeah, absolutely. Because oh, that's how that kind of television works, isn't it? You know, it's, it's, it's all in the title. Let's start with the title. Now, go back to your, you know, your cell where you're having to come up with ideas like this all the time that might be sold to a television company. Do you start with the title? Absolutely. Time's the most important thing. I mean, you mentioned... The, the title set. is the most important thing about the TV programme. The title grabs the commissioning editor's attention, and that's what gets you the commission. But the reason it does that is the theory is um, since we all went digital, we've got the EPG, the Electronic Programme Guide. So the idea is you're at home flicking through the, the channels on, with your remote. You get a three-word uh, title come up and you make your decision in a split second about whether you watch or not based on that. So the title has to grab you immediately. Sex Inspectors, which you raised, is a perfect example. Because what is it? They inspect sex. Fair enough. I'll work <laughs> <laughs> the, the, one, the one I loved, uh, one of the ones I loved that you mentioned was uh, the one about the the, um, the dwarf psychic. Yeah. Which is called Small Medium at Large. <laughs> <laughs> and you're absolutely right. I'd watch that. <laughs> Even though I imagine it's rubbish and I don't have a huge amount of interest in that subject, but just Small Medium at Large. It's all in the title. That second of inspiration is what got that program commissioned. So, yeah. so the, the, the famous, you know, I referred to at the beginning of this, I referred to monkey tennis, you yeah. know, which is, the, the, I mean, this is years ago, isn't it? The, the Alan Partridge, uh, whichever series it was, where he is desperately trying to pitch ideas to BBC Two commissioning editor or head of the channel or whatever in a restaurant at the BBC. And he's just throwing in ideas one after the other. And uh, none of them are getting anywhere. And he just goes, monkey tennis? It's like the most reduced idea you can possibly imagine. You know, Probably work out. It absolutely would. That's the sad thing. If it hadn't been Alan Partridge, Channel 5 would probably take that up. If really? You, if you get monkeys to hold table tennis bats. <laughs> I can see it now. So you sit there. What do you do? You sit there with pads of paper and you're just writing down ideas all the time. Um, in some companies with more resources, you have special development executives. So you sit in, a, in an office with lots of beanbags and chairs, lots of sort of whiteboards, and he's come up with title upon title upon title, pun upon pun, until he finds something that hits. What, like hundreds? Yeah, absolutely. Go on, give us examples of the ones you've been uh, thinking of recently. Um, one of the ones I'm most proud about is uh, I wanted to make a programme about uh, homosexuality within the Taliban. And <laughs> I know what's coming. <laughs> suicide bombers, and it's still a crime <laughs> that hasn't been commissioned. Yeah, not bombers, listeners, if you've... <coughs> <laughs> <laughs> was that commissioned? No, I can't think why. So um, these, <laughs> do these? Uh, how many of these get beyond the point of just being ideas on a whiteboard that are you know forgotten about at lunchtime? Um, a good proportion get written up, maybe twenty, thirty percent. So they all get sent in, um, and the strike rate, the success rate, is probably about one percent. Right, so it's, it's quite. Do you, need, do you need any depth to it at that point, or is it literally the title? Um, once you've got the title, then you need a few sort of grabbing factoids that, you know. <laughs> Give us an example. If, we're going, if we were going to make, if you're pitching suicide bombers to be a married, <laughs> okay. Well, how, what, how would you follow that grabby title? What would you follow it with? Um, 87.5% of the Taliban are gay. <laughs> and then, <laughs> the commission, yeah, the commission, yeah. Doesn't have to be true. That has to be grabbing. So the commission goes, wow, I never knew that. <laughs> <laughs> because it's not true. 
There's some truth to it. So you get a... Then on the treatment, you've got a picture of, say, some Taliban fighter wearing makeup, and, you know, he sees that, he reads the title, he reads the fact, and he's like, yeah, I'll make that. You're halfway there. Absolutely. So that point. backwards then from that. Yeah, absolutely. And the final thing is you get a presenter. Right. Does this not make you despair? <coughs> um, a little, but... I don't know, good programmes do still get made, yeah. so, you know... Right, so we got the title, we got, we got the factoids. You don't, need, you don't need a proper concept, as you might have with a newspaper or a magazine or whatever. You just need a few facts. And then your presenter. Now, this is obviously a key element, isn't it? You talk about this in this yeah. piece. Tell us about, about the importance of the presenter. Like the title, uh, a lot hangs on the presenter. Um, it's not a necessary difference between getting commissioned or not, but it really, really will help. Um, Commissioning editors have favourite presenters, so Channel 4 history, it is Tony Robinson. Right. Um, Baldrick. Yeah, absolutely. Because he was Baldrick in Blackadder, therefore he's qualified. Therefore he's well qualified. Which is how TV works. It is. Um, (coughs) 20 years ago, you would have an ex... The only academic I can think of on screen is David Starkey, maybe Niall Ferguson. 20 years ago, a programme about history would be presented by a historian. Now, it's presented by a uh, comedian. Comedians are... Generally, there's a default mode for presenters. In there. And comedians seem to be doing loads of these travel shows, don't they? Paul Merton. Absolutely. Rick is that Is that just another trend that will continue until the next one? Essentially, yeah. I mean, it started out with a complete left-field idea, which is Paul Merton in China. When it got commissioned, everyone thought, that's not going to work. It did work. It got a fantastic audience. So everyone's cottoned onto it. It's the next thing. So what do you do? You get a middle-aged comedian get them driving around in some kind of eccentric, outmoded vehicle. So you've got Stephen Fry going around in the black cab around America. <laughs> I can um, do this. Oh, well, yeah, but you're not going to get asked because you're not a famous comedian. <laughs> See, that's the real... <laughs> I, I can think up these ideas. It's not that hard. <laughs> <laughs> Excuse me. So um, th- it's interesting, this business about comedians, because when they're going and doing these programmes, they're not having their usual scriptwriters with them, are they? You know, so they're... I find when I watch these things, they're not as funny as, you, as the, your expectation is. They're just kind of mildly facetious instead. instead. It, it strikes me that's the default mode of most telly nowadays. Mm. It's mildly facetious. Sort of got its tongue in its cheek. But, but it's never laugh out loud, loud funny. Absolutely. I mean, getting presented, uh, comedians to do serious programmes has major drawbacks because they fall between two stools. Because two stools, A, they can't really be that funny. B, they're not that incisive. So yeah. you just essentially get a sort of grumpy, straight, sarcastic, middle-aged man hectoring natives. <laughs> is it popular because, in the same way as movies, which, you know, Batman 9 is going to do better than something you've never heard of because of the franchise? Is it, is it, is it as simple as that? You'll watch it, because you already know about Stephen Fry, it's safer, it'll get commissioned. Is that the thinking? Behind Absolutely. It? Once you've got a brand behind you, you're fine. You can do whatever you want. Um, Kirstie Allsop's a brand. Got Wan's a brand. You just come out with different sort of permutations of that. It's, I always thought the closest parallel was um, in 1984, they've got the Prol Feed Generator, which is this sort of mis- machine like a kaleidoscope that just jumbles together plots to make sort of cheap pulp novels. It's exactly like that. Lord Harris, happy with Harris, can I ask a personal question? How old are you? Uh, I'm 27. You're 27. <laughs> got the cynicism of my age. <laughs> How long have you been working in television? How long did it take for you to reach this uh, this level of cynicism? Uh, about four or five years. Four or five years. That's all it takes. Okay, straight. <laughs> How does good TV then get made? Good good TV, as in you know quality yeah. TV. Yeah. Um, doesn't rely on the title. 
Essentially, you do a, co- a co-pro, a co-production with HBO in America, and they put. The you money have in. to bring in money from Pretty outside, because yeah. okay. within the budget. Because that's what next thing I was going to talk about. You know, uh, Suicide Bombers. So, have we got a presenter, Suicide Bombers? You, you must have had one in in, in mind. Uh, Do you know? One. I couldn't find anyone who. You couldn't. Uh, did you yeah, pitch maybe it? that's why I didn't get <laughs> commission. Let's assume that Stephen Fry had the, you know, that, thought it was funny enough to want yeah. to do it. Okay, and he, he was taken enough with the idea. What's the budget for a program like that? How much? How much you know, per program? Um, it really varies, and to be honest, it's, that's a decision sort of above my pay scale. I was come up with the, the ideas, but depending on. Um, channel for the bbc it's effectively unlimited they can charge whatever they want because it comes out of license fee but <laughs> we've well, for you and me <laughs> for the channel four it's ideally as cheap as possible so at the moment the next big thing is going to be archive shows because there's dirt cheap right right well, archive what just i love the 70s that's what I, I think list shows have been completely you can't really do another list show apart from the 100 best list shows. So, I mean... <laughs> That's an idea. <laughs> um, I watched a programme on BBC4 last night about weddings, and it's purely made up of 1950s, 1960s clips with a sort of sarky voiceover. That's what the future's going to look like. Oh, uh, really? Century, yeah. The future is going to look like <clears throat> old stuff? Essentially, the future's going to look like the past, but the, uh, sarcastically, yeah. OK. So it's kind, so it's kind of like a list, list show anyway, without all the talking heads. Yeah, essentially. Right. But if you've got a budget, what I'm trying to get at is, and, and you've got Stephen Fry, how much of the budget is going to Stephen Fry? Half of it? Uh, a good proportion. A yeah. lot? Yeah, a, a lot. Because they're the talent, even though <laughs> you just shoehorn them in, give them a script to read. and you know. They're the talent. Yeah. So it, the, these are good days to be a middle-aged, well-known comedian. Absolutely. You, oh, can, yeah. you can go. Now, presumably, if you're Victoria Wood or Stephen Fry or Paul Merton... You, you can work the other way. If you decide you want to do anything, if you want to do, you know, underwater monasteries, a, a series, they'll, they'll pretty much do it. You'll find somebody to do it, will you? Pretty much, yeah. I mean, I really wish I was a middle-aged comedian. I could write a novel, I could be a TV presenter, I could do anything I want. That's the, that's the career option for the future. But Good grief. I remember interviewing Michael Palin, and, um, who I suppose was the first of these, wasn't he? He was famous uh, yes. at five yeah, yeah, yeah. And he said, he, he told me he was like fifth choice or something. And the other alternatives were Noel Edmonds, Miles Kington, Alan Wicker. And something. You know, it was a totally different set. Hole, yeah, 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 yeah. Fishing in back then. Yeah, it was quite radical. And he was sort of way down the list. Yeah. Because they didn't adapt. This is only 20 years ago. The idea of somebody who'd been in Monty Python traveling yes. was, was a radical idea, whereas now it's... It's now, it's just, you perfectly natural. accept it, yeah, yeah. So now you talk in this, in this feature about, once you've got your person and you've got your idea, you have to send them on a journey, you say. Now, here are you talking about a literal journey, you know, go to, you know, Afghanistan, or are you, you talking about a journey in terms of the story or the plot of the, uh, the series? Uh, both, really. It's journey with a J, capital J. So um, you can't go on a literal journey unless you're going on a personal journey. So you can't just go around India. You've got Sanjeev Bhaskar going around India to discover the land of his ancestors. Right. It has to have a point to it. Yeah, it's got to have some kind of really introspective sort of navel-gazing point or meaning. So so at the beginning of the programme, it always has to start with, I've noticed this recently, I'm going to so-and-so to find out whether, you know, as if suddenly somebody hadn't already found out... 
The, 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 the Victoria Wood is going to work it out for you is ridiculous. And everyone now goes on this um, personal spiritual journey, don't they? Even, um, even on the X Factor, you know, when, when, or, or what, any of the reality shows at the end, they say, let's take a look at your journey. Which right. will be a clip back, and they're sort of assuming that they've gone from this <laughs> to this in the space of, of whatever. Everybody's on a journey now. Absolutely. It's, it's gone across every single format. So, typical BBC Three Doc, I don't know. The trouble with pies, say, you've got someone going, I eat a lot of pies, but what do pies really mean? Why do I eat pies? What's it like to make a pie? I'm, gonna, I'm going on a personal journey to find I'm out. Going to I'm going to meet, meet a pie maker. I'm going to... And with that, they walk out short, don't they? And get in an amusing vehicle and go somewhere. Well, absolutely. A pie-shaped yeah, pie vehicle. Pie-shaped vehicle. They probably uh. do. Now, I'm, I'm fascinated by all this. And I, I want to just move on and uh, talk briefly about something that Barry's written about in the, um, in the current issue, uh, which is The Apprentice. Which you're still doggedly watching, Barry. I'm a huge fan of The Apprentice. Uh, I mean, the point I was trying to make in this column was there had been a lot of talk as to how The Apprentice was going to have to change to reflect the new credit crunch reality we all live in and that somehow or other Alan Sugar was going to dress down, perhaps, and maybe muck in with a few of the tasks. Actually, he's more aggressive, um, more obnoxious, more brilliant, therefore, if you're watching it, than ever. So I, I think The Apprentice... You see, for me, these shows... Some of them still work. Yeah, I know they're slightly dumb. I know that was probably pitched as a very kind of tight version of something else. But when it's done really well and you get it right, it's fantastic. Well, I watched the first couple of series and uh, devotedly, actually. I loved it. But then I, I kind of... What happened is, is you get a kind of inflation that sets into these things, that they have to find contestants who are slightly more annoying than they were before. You know, yeah. that you can't sympathise with anymore. And also, what strikes you very you know, clearly after two series is, what kind of person would possibly want a job with Alan Sugar, even in these straightened times? <laughs> there, there is, I mean, there is a point, I think, at which you do jump off from these shows. I've done it with Big Brother. Big Brother's the tenth year of Big Brother is about to happen. Yeah. And I did about six or seven, like a, like a lot of people, I think, based, <coughs> based on the ratings. I think there is a point at which you just tire, unless it is still brilliantly... Maintained, right. produced. But I think The Apprentice just about gets away. How does how is The Apprentice done? Because it's recorded, isn't it? It's done ages ago, isn't it? Isn't that the it case? is. Uh, a friend of mine uh, worked on it actually, but she won't tell me who won, which is really annoying for my so so for my fun. Whoever won, really over, isn't it? Yeah. whoever yeah, won, it was known what two months ago or something yeah, like so that. So they must have, you know incredibly terrifying uh, secrecy clauses in their contracts. Which is extraordinary. This has never leaked at all, to any, even though the newspapers are all over this, this stuff. Would they shoot um, a number of, of endings? I've, got, I've heard that... That's um, what I heard. Yeah, that they, they might have sort of a final three. So they've got, until the very end, there's a sort of mix, you know, who it could be, right. depending so on how There's it only is. half a dozen people would know. Yeah. The other thing that strikes me about the the the, um, the apprentices is nothing to do with business whatsoever. No. It's all to do with personnel. It's all to do with stuff we used to do on conferences, Barry. I was going to say it's like being when I watch it. Maybe why I feel a warm glow about it. It's like being back on one of those <laughs> major publishing houses for conferences. Yes. At a big old country house with a flip chart. Because it's, it's about leadership, isn't it? That's all it's about. It's about, do you get up people's noses, or do you not? And can you get people to do things? And the quality of the ideas uh, produced at the end of each project is similar to the ones <laughs> that were produced at one of those conferences yes. when strong drink has been taken. <laughs> 
So will there are there going to be is there going to be more of the Apprentice or is that is that the end? Do I would, we know? I would have thought it definitely will be. Yeah. Oh really? So yeah. as long as there's long as there's fortunes to be made in this particular dead horse, the whip will be applied. Cynicism aside, The Apprentice is great TV. It is it compulsively watchable. Um, it's was it telling about business? Absolutely nothing. It's ridiculous, but it's great TV. So yeah, it'll keep going. The other thing that, the, that fascinates me, going back to your business about j- every program has to go on a journey. The thing that I've noticed, and it's bloody obvious actually if you think about it, is that all these programs have a spurious time constraint. Whatever you have to do, we have to do by six o'clock. Yeah. And it goes back to kind of challenge Annika, doesn't That's it? Right. Annika always had to build a village hall. Yeah. And she always had to do it by six o'clock. Yeah, she's be back in the boardroom yes. by five. Yes. Is, is that because television just needs that, that um, idea under, underpinning it? Yeah. Open, open ends don't work in TV. You, need, you do need some kind of constraint just for the viewers to get their head around, supposedly. Right. So, I mean, to create tension, I guess, as well. Absolutely. So you've got something like Time Team. You know, even like 10, 15 years ago, it's doing this. You know, we've got three days to attack this arc, this precious archaeological site with bulldozers just right. to see if you can yes. scrabble up like, a few bits of <laughs> was well, totally smash it no doubt absolutely yeah. <laughs> I used to pitch ideas to uh, people in TV and they, they would always say the same thing back to me there's not enough jeopardy oh it. absolutely go on tell us about, tell us about jeopardy I never quite understood it is that still the case yeah. oh absolutely jeopardy is one of the most important things um, explain jeopardy the idea that whoever's in it has got something to lose. So you've got something like uh, No Going Back is a classic example on Channel 4. People give up their jobs and run a, right. a sort of crumbling hotel in the Pyrenees or whatever. The jeopardy comes in, you know, uh, they haven't got enough money to buy all the jam from the suppliers or whatever. <laughs> Are they going to lose the hotel? You know, I'm gripped. <laughs> <laughs> you just create these sort of false, uh, dramatic scenarios. Right. It's just one of those things that works Absolutely, in television. Yeah. Still, that's still the case, yeah. Oh, completely. I mean, Channel, so. Channel 4 especially, all their programmes, all about lifestyle, all about Jeopardy. Jeopardy stroke lifestyle is their main niche. So. Let me introduce another element into this, which I was told years ago. The most illuminating thing I was ever told about television was Michael Jackson, not the pop star. Mm-hmm. Michael Jackson used to be a controller of BBC Two. He said, television is all about moments of disclosure. It's all about seeing something change on the human face. Absolutely. It's a really good point. Good point. So if you think about everything, you know, obviously reality TV shows, it's the moment when they go back into their room in changing rooms and see whether they like it or they don't like it. Yeah. It's the moment when Alan Sugar, you know, when somebody is fired. Yeah. But it's also, if you take it further, that's why football works so well yeah. on the telly. Because it's the close-up of the person who scored or, or didn't score yeah. that is what works. It's who do you think you are. It's seeing uh, Jeremy Paxman crying, and that's the money shot. and That's that's a good series. That's uh, a pro- proper TV, isn't it? Well, they all had to it's cry. Nice. It's compulsory, and who, who do you think you yeah. are, wasn't it? They all had to cry. The only person who wouldn't cry on camera, interestingly enough, was Jer- Jerry Springer. Did you see the Jerry Springer thing? Yeah, who lost one. you know, Auschwitz. ancestors at Auschwitz, and he walked away from the camera. And was clearly, obviously, upset, but was not going to let them see it. Would that have started with the title, or was there a bit, was there a bit more to it than that? Um, no, it would have started with an internet clipping or link saying more people... Are, 98% of people have checked out their ancestry. Right, yeah, yeah, yeah. And then you go, how about we get celebrities to check out their ancestry? Because yeah. celebs are inherently far more interesting than yeah. actual people. But it's... <laughs> <And then, laughs> Bingo. Yeah, absolutely. But nobody, I bet when, the, when that programme was pitched and originally thought about it, I bet nobody thought, and it'll be really good because they'll cry. But mm. very quickly, oh, they yeah. realised that was. crying was the key. 
you know, looking at an old birth register or whatever. Everybody always had to find out that they had an ancestor who had no money or had to emigrate or whatever. Well, from the from the West yes. <laughs> had to go and find something tragic, you know, so that you could see this person, you know, actually crumpling into tears. So these money shots, as you refer to them, are absolutely yeah. key in these things. So let's talk about the X Factor and what's the face, Barry? Subo. Well, which, which you were, you know, were candid enough to say you found quite moving. Uh, this is Susan Boyle on Britain's Got Talent. Yeah. All oh, right. Okay. No, yeah. Now known uh, as Subo in tabloids of Christendom. Benefer J Lo Subo. Um, but yeah, I've, what I find quite moving about it was just it, it was the context where that program is so cynical and so stage managed and so all of the boxes are ticked and. Simon's the pantomime villain, and Amanda Holden sitting there come blinking them back, and Piers Morgan looking a bit pompous, not that hard. Um, and then just in the middle of this, you had this woman who, whatever all that stuff, you know, around her, when she started singing, did have a beautiful voice. And just for a brief moment, I was touched by it. But, but the idea that Simon Cowell or whoever was taken aback by this is not true. No, I mean, the whole thing, I, I imagine, Aris would know more than me, is very contrived and very stage-managed and out and deck or how this is going to be rubbish, isn't it? Oh, my God, she can sing. Yeah. But it's still just about managed to cut through. It's a fairy story, isn't it? It is a fairy story. It's a fairy story for our times. Right. <laughs> what but, they, sorry, what they did that was quite clever there was, as far as I remember, they didn't give her the sort of moving backstory before she went on. She just went up to stage. You know, oh, I see. She's Which in the normally they do the moving the yeah, story. Yeah, that's right. Normally the moving story, you know, my children all, you know, yeah. whatever, died of some horrible disease and my best friend got blown up and now I'm going to sing and start crying. It means so much to me. She's in the wings with Ant and Deck. So they just did their sort of classic freak show set-up before, you know, laughed that's at right. her. Yeah. They asked her who did she want to be and she said Elaine Page. And there were lots of knowing, <laughs> not the millionaires. Oh, right, 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 right. Uh, yeah. So yeah, they, they went down the freak show route. Absolutely. So really they had it both ways. You know, they still get their freak show uh, content, but they still, at the same time, they can be, look how moving we are, just striking a blow for real people, blah, 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 blah. Very clever, but, yeah. So, Aris, it, it, it's going to get worse, is your prediction? Actually, well, yeah, absolutely. It'll, it'll get worse before it gets better, if it gets better. Um... If there is a return to archive, then that could mean a return to more serious programming. I mean, I've always thought The World at War was the best documentary series that's ever been made. That is essentially an archive show. Um, yeah. But the point you make about The World at War is, the world at war is if we did it now, you'd have... What was it, Captain Mannering? Yeah, oh, yes. it'd be <laughs> Arthur Lowe, Captain Mannering, on a personal journey from Warminton on Sea to Hitler's bunker. It's an excellent quote from this, uh, from this excellent feature. Do, do read it in the current issue of Word. Barry, is there anything we should be watching on telly? Um, well, I, I, unfortunately, we've been laughing a bit about Dog Borstal. I have been watching <laughs> um, The Dog Whisperer. Oh, right. Which is on one of the outer reaches of, uh, of Cape. But if you've got a dog, it's fantastic. And it's actually quite well done. Although I fear, having listened to Aris, I can just see how it was made. You know? <laughs> <laughs> I'm feeling rather guilty about that particular pleasure. Well, we're all, we'll all look that out on our EPG uh, this evening. Yes. And, uh, and the tune dog in. channel. <laughs> <laughs> Thanks very much, gentlemen. The Word. A magazine, a website, a podcast, a way of life. This is David Hepworth and Fraser Lurie with the word podcast. And as we've uh, been remarking on in the last few weeks, 
We are two weeks away from our centenary podcast. I, right. I'm very excited. I, I'm beside myself. I can't sleep. You know, I think we should put balloons on the gates. I think so, yeah. um, and there is a way in which you, dear listener, can actually participate in this, in this very podcast. Uh, we're going to give you a special number in a moment. And this number, you can ring and leave a message for us. We prefer that this message was no longer than 30 seconds, because we've got very short attention spans. This is a service we can only extend to our valued customers in the United Kingdom. That's right. Because we don't want to bankrupt anybody else by having them phoning from New Zealand or Antarctica or wherever. But you can leave us a message. This could take the form of a remark, a strange remark. We could have a strange remark, couldn't we? We could have something inexplicable. They could sing a song. They could sing a song, as long as it's no more than 30 seconds long. They could ask a question. Yep. They could leave a testimonial for us, saying what a splendid job we're doing. We'd like lots of those. We'd like lots of those. Don't forget, it's free. And Or they could make a request. Yep. Or they could use that 30 seconds. There's something that I've always wanted to know about Word magazine. Now is the time to Now's ask. your opportunity. And so the ideal... Recorded message would be, this is so-and-so, please introduce yourself, because there's no point, you know, leaving this message if we don't know who to attribute it to. No. And then, this is my point, or this is my question. So what's the number, Dave? (laughs) What's the recipe today, Jim? The number, which actually we'll put on the website, wordmagazine.co.uk, but the number, if you've got pencil and paper ready, have you got pencil and paper ready? We'll wait. You got it? You can never find a pencil, can you? Okay. The number is 07092-050466. Those numbers again. 07092-050466. And if for any reason you've missed any of that, don't worry. It'll be on the Word website, wordmagazine.co.uk. So don't forget, no longer than 30 seconds... Don't forget to introduce yourself, UK only, but it's your opportunity to be involved in that historic podcasting event that everybody is looking forward to, which is Word 100, which is coming along in two weeks' time. So you've got two weeks to do this. Okay. I'll order the balloons. This podcast was brought to you by The Word. Details at wordmagazine.co.uk. deserves the best and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market.